One man was born into slavery and became the toast of the New York City wrestling scene. Another man was born in Jamaica and won the most prestigious wrestling tournament in England. What do these men have in common? They were the first black champions in pro wrestling history. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Holy crap, everybody. We are back with another episode of Pro Wrestling History Nerds. Who the heck am I? I'm Nick Gossard. I am a professional wrestling promoter, but more important for today, I'm a history dork. And I'm here with the sideshow Bob to my crusty the clown, replete with the, all the attempted murders. Chongo Bronson, how the hell are you, man? I'm really upset that I couldn't get the one up on that rascal fifth grader Bart Simpson. And I want to know how long has he been in fifth grade anyway? I'm going to get that rascally rabbit. I believe you will. And here with us is the rake that Ch Chongo as Sideshow Bob keeps stepping on and slapping him in the face. That is the most forced metaphor I will ever make. It's the final boss. It's Bruce Waynes. How the hell are you, man? Thanks for being here. I'm recording live, daddy. I'm happy to be here with you history buff nerds. And uh, speaking of buff nerds, the name of the game. You're looking proper svelte these days. Oh, you know, man. Tracksuit Charlie, bro. Yes, you know? yes, yes. Tracksuits do that. I've been yes. killing kitties. Welcome to the nerd party, darling. Yes, yes. Are you ready to perform? I am ready. Actually, I am a history buff, whether you know it or not. So what we do here at Pro Wrestling History Nerds, we are delving deep into the past of professional wrestling. We're not covering Raw, we're not covering SmackDown, we're not even talking about old WCW. We're going deep, deep into the archives and exposing the deep, rich, and amazing history of grappling in the United States and today beyond. We're even gonna go touch base in Scotland and Europe. And we're doing the best we can. So if we tell a story and you say to yourselves, as a history nerd myself, I heard it this way. You know what? That's entirely possible. We are putting the story together the best we can with the resources that one can find because pro wrestling doesn't have a very well-documented history. It's an oral tradition. We kept our secrets for decades. Nobody was telling stories. Men went to their graves with their secrets in their hearts and we're doing the best to recreate those scenarios. And I also wanna thank everybody who's listening to this show, everybody who's been giving us great reviews, everybody who's been saying, hey, five stars would recommend. But we're gonna talk about one guy today. We're gonna to talk about a man who did not like our show. Can you believe somebody didn't like our show? What? I was as shocked as you. Preposterous. Disbelief. What is it, what is this? What do they call that line? Is it, what are you, Jive. Wait, no, jive yes, it's definitely Jive, but when you're not the person you profess to be on, on the internet, what do they call that, tuna canning? Catfish. Ah, oh, yes, I love that. Catfish. I love that dish, but not only in the South, definitely not in Colorado. That's what Coco So what do this catfish have to say? So we got a, and I will, I will give him credit, he gave us a three-star review, but here is the text of his review. Probably not for me. I think the format and premise is good. I've been looking for something like this. However, it took all of 10 minutes for the main host to make a, quotation, clever political quip about modern day politics and it makes me think there will be more grandstanding to come. I assume he didn't like me comparing the Tammany Hall corruption to the Trump campaign. What a gosh darn snowflake. He must have felt so attacked, so hurt, so outraged. Poor little man. And if he knew just how far to the left I am, but don't talk about on this podcast, he would be horrified. Good thing he checked out. More to come. 
I probably should have been tipped off by his voice that sounds like something far removed from the voice of someone supposedly involved with the wrestling business. I don't know what that means. It sounds like he thinks we are not who we say we are and we do not do what we say we do. If you don't mind that stuff, you should stick with it. I'll just go read for myself, I guess. So moving forward, as always, thank you for listening. And if you're on iTunes, please leave us a five-star review and you know, put, a, put some comments in there. It's not for us to feel cool. It's not for us to feel like badasses. The algorithm improves the more reviews and interaction that there is. But here's our new rule. If you're gonna leave less than a five-star review, you need to leave us your address because you have to fight one of us. It doesn't matter which, you You can flip a coin, that's you good. can just say you don't care, but one that's of us good. has to show up and fight you. And that's just the way it's gonna have to be moving forward. Accept it, let it into your heart. Thank you so much. Rules. So today, we have a fucking amazing subject or subjects. We're gonna be talking about the early black champions in professional wrestling, both in America and a Caribbean-born man who made his bones in Europe. Yes. And we're not combining these stories to do some sort of token-esque uh, Black History Month thing where we're just trying to get it out of the way. These are men whose lives were shrouded in mystery. There's not a lot of information about them. So in order to fill out an episode, we took two men who have amazing legendary careers and lives. This is some maybe some mind-blowing stories. And we just brought them together for the theme. There are other early black wrestlers that we will cover later, but we only have so much time today to discuss them. And frankly, I'm excited to present this information to everyone. Yeah, the first two black male world champions in catch-as-catch-can style pro wrestling here and across the pond, I mean, the it is a tragic indictment of pro wrestling's history as little as has been preserved in the written word. It's such an auditory and verbal tradition. Even in that context, there's so little uh, written history of of the the black pioneers in pro wrestling, and it's it's really we we. I'm really excited about doing this because for one, you know, Chongo Jr. I want him to understand the history of what he has his, his birthright and the the part of him that has overcome that I can't tell him. You know what I'm saying? We've talked about that many times. Yeah. And there, there are aspects to being a black man in America where the history involved is something that no one else will ever be able to understand firsthand. And the history of pro wrestling is a perfect microcosm for the history of uh, black men in America. And I'm really excited about to, doing this episode. Yeah, I like that. And you know what else? This is a good point to pro wrestling in general because these are carnies we're talking about. Oh, yeah. So it's got to be spoken. They ain't writing nothing down. But more importantly, it doesn't matter the color of the guy as long as you're the guy. Yeah, exactly. Well, it had to, you had to be the guy on such a inarguable degree back That's then. That's right. To, you know, Jackie Robinson it up and that's break that barrier. Yeah. And that's what we're going to talk about today, man. And it's going to be very similar to when we talked about a lot of the stars, uh, the female stars who worked for Billy Wolf, the Mildred Burks, the 
Babs Wingos, the women who predated um, you know, what the WWE now promotes as wrestling history. I am making quotation marks because today wrestling history is primarily dictated by WWE, formerly WWF, formerly WWWF, because if they can't monetize it, it didn't happen. So that's why you hear these stories and it's eye-opening. It's amazing. It's shocking, in fact, that you never heard about these people, but it's because there's no direct lineage from point A to point B like we see with other crossover sports. In boxing, in baseball, in basketball, when black men crossed the color line, there was a direct lineage of that sport leading up to today. They didn't just disappear off the face of the earth. So the first man I want to talk about today is named Vero Small. And there's a lot of mystery and contradiction in the story of Vero Small as to when his career started or when it ended. What happened to him when it was all over? When did he die? Because he worked in the shadow of mainstream wrestling and boxing due to being a black man. His story wasn't as well documented as his white contemporaries. And that leaves us little to work with. I had to scour through the Library of Congress newspaper uh, archive extensively. I found, fortunately, a very good documentary called Black Sam's Statue. You can watch it on on uh, uh, Vimeo right now. I highly recommend you do Black so. Sam Statue? Black Sam Statue, because that was his gimmick name, Black Sam from Vermont. Now we're talking. But what we do have is impressive as hell. But with these men, especially somebody like Vero Small, I, you know, kind of keeping it on that side of the color line, I compare it a lot to a man like Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson, at least we have the catalog of all his recordings, but what we know about the man himself can be said in about 10 minutes. Because again, these were not traditionally understood famous artists, performers, athletes. We kind of came to them as historical figures. We didn't realize they were this important until they were long gone. Mm. Vero Small was born in Beaufort, Alabama in 1854. Roll tight. He was born into slavery. That's how, uh, yeah, that's the period in history that this man came what into year? the world. 1854. Yeah, yeah. So he was born into that's slavery. Right there. And he gained his freedom at the end of the Civil War. And as a teenager, he moved north, working odd jobs as he went, starving at times, going town to town, almost like a hobo during the Depression but clearly persevered with an iron will that would later show itself in the ring. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that kind of tragic backstory is definitely got the underpinnings of the, of the psychological makeup it takes to have the grit to be a champion, man. I mean, more importantly, that's not that long ago. No, it is really no, not really in the historic record. And, you know, this is one of those things where contemporary human beings especially white human beings like myself, it is impossible to fathom that level of just disconnected chaos where, oh, I was born into literal human bondage. A big war breaks out and I'm not given my 40 acres and a mule. I am not giving any sort of comfort or uh, stability. I'm just told, well, good luck. You're free now. Go have fun. Promised. And yeah. imagine, imagine the drive that it takes to be put in that situation where you go from being born in bondage to being declared all of a sudden free, free to choose what you want to pursue with your whole heart. And then 
chasing that dream unapologetically. He didn't have yeah. any means to chase the dream. Like you said, he was living like a hobo because you came from literally nothing and you are you are surviving on just your effort and your your grit and I am so excited to see this story unfold. I'm, I'm sticking on jive turkeys. Imagine the jive <laughs> of having to deal with those circumstances and then the drive yeah. to find a path doing doing what we do. Yeah. And he and that's yeah, go ahead. Oh, and he wasn't just a wrestler. His boxing career started in 1871. And though he might have started wrestling around the same time, he has no recorded wrestling matches until 1881, when he stepped in as a last minute replacement against Mike Horrigan under collar and elbow rules. While Vero did lose his debut match, Horrigan was so impressed that he took him on as a trainee. Because keep in mind, Wrestling was still very much a folk style, especially yeah, right. in that part of the country when you get to like Vermont, Connecticut, where you had a large influx of European immigrants yeah. bringing their own wrestling styles. We talked about this a lot in the carnival wrestling episode where you would have this melting pot of Irish collar and elbow, English catch as catch can. <laughs> German folk wrestling, and it all just kind of meshed together, and people had weird opportunities like this. So Vero, standing five foot ten and weighing in at 185 pounds, Small wasn't exactly a modern heavyweight, but for the time he was a big, solid athlete. Yeah, I mean, about the size of an NFL cornerback today, but that's definitely big enough to get the job done, especially yeah. back then. I'm sure it's a wrestler, it's a shooter. Yeah, shooter. Based out of St. Alban and Rutland, Vermont, he took on the name Samuel Hadley, or Black Sam of Vermont, as his wrestling career took off. Competing mostly in the Irish collar and elbow style of wrestling because he was in towns where there was a large population of Irish immigrants. What's there to do with a lack of radio, television, or iPhones to play on but to wrestle and learn how to wrestle? Yeah. He reportedly won 63 matches between 1882 wow. and 1892, including the Vermont Collar and Elbow Championship twice, which most likely makes him the first African-American wrestling champion, whether legitimate or show, in American history. Yeah, and this is at a time when it was a lot more go than show. These were these were always billed as shoots, and even though some matches weren't necessarily on the level, they weren't what we think of as a modern work. There might be more of like a fix-in type of a work scenario as opposed to like a standard work we would think today, but it was definitely much more of a shoot uh, aspect, and I think that's uh, indicative of his record because he had about 60-something wins over yeah. a 10-year period. That's about a match every two months, and that's about the rate you would want to go if you were really competing in a, in a shoot fight. And also keep in mind, he was boxing at the same time. Wow. And what makes me think nearly everything he did was legitimate, was a shoot, is how many white men in the 1870s and 1880s are going to want to put over a black man in a worked match? Twice. Yes, zero. Twice. Yes, yes, he definitely, he earned those W's, That's old right. chap. That's the best part because that means while he was working out there, he was getting wins over white guys in 1906 and whatnot, you know, like, Oh, well before so, that. This is oh, 18. Still, sorry, 18. Talking, yeah, we're talking still Reconstruction, yeah. Civil War so, times. Man, this is unheard of. Oh, you know yeah. I mean? Oh, and I bet. And, can you imagine what Cletus had to go through 
the next day when he goes to work with all his buddies all hang over and they then he's the one that was he's the one that got whooped off and he's the one that got whooped last night that's right and you may be wondering just how impressive the grappling scene of late 1800s vermont could have been it was actually very impressive like I said, there was a large Irish immigrant population working in the rail yards. Collar and elbow wrestling was the de jour pastime of the area, with matches taking place even after town hall meetings and at county fairs, in the bars, pretty much everywhere you went. What were people watching? What were people competing in? Collar and elbow wrestling. Describe collar and elbow wrestling to us. It's essentially a a grappling style that utilizes a jacket similar to judo. And the term collar and elbow is because you grip the lapel literally at the collar and then you grip the fabric at the elbow in a standard collar and elbow tie up. And that is what is still sort of utilized today in a pro wrestling lockup, that collar and elbow lockup. And it was very similar and we see this a lot in on the British Isle. Same thing with Scottish backhold wrestling. You would wear this jacket because it afforded grips that being bare or bare and oiled up, like we see in many other wrestling styles, didn't afford. It brought a different dimension to things that we didn't see in other styles like catch as catch can. It did slow things down as anybody who has done jujitsu and a gi can attest, but it gave people a different way to throw people because there was different leverage points. Yeah. Yeah, you basically turn the other person's upper body into a third hand. Anywhere you want to create a grip on the other person's torso, you have the ability to do so. So the the gi or the jacket acts as a, a third hand and it creates a tremendously uh, vast amount of opportunities for takedowns and submissions. So when I grab a sucker in the collar and elbow, I got him in the Irish collar and elbow, Yes. Yep. Pretty much. Yep. That's where the term comes from. You've opened up a new world. Yes. This is going to be good. Oh, we're, wait, wait till you learn how to actually use the grips, old chap. And the region produced high profile wrestlers like Henry Moses Dufour, who I discussed in the half poor episode you can see on YouTube about George Flagg and John McMahon, who we talked about briefly in our William Muldoon series. But no, he's not related to those McMahons. Vera Small and Mike Horrigan took the regional New England fairs and festivals by storm, putting on demonstrations and accepting challenges from the crowd in the carnival tradition. Nice. This is always one of my favorite things when we discuss old-timey wrestling is that carnival, open challenge, risk of scams. Uh, you would listen to our carnival episode for details, but how, how would you describe this time in wrestling? I mean, it was the classic you know, almost archetypal stereotypical picture we all have in our head of the carnies working the marks. You know, you you have the stick or the plant in the crowd that would be your purposeful guy that that is gonna call out the champion to build interest. And then on top of that, you've got actual, you know, what, what do you call them, just local, We'll Slackjaw yokels yeah, or whatever. We'll the local yokels. Good old local boys. Yeah. yeah. The, the essentially, you would go out there as a highly trained wrestler, put out a challenge. Sometimes you would have a plant in the audience come up and be like, hey, I'm just a simple farm boy. Let's do some. I, I think I can grapple Let's, well to put on a big show for betting purposes. Sometimes you just got the equivalent of 
If you've ever gone to a bar to watch an Ultimate Fighting Championship pay-per-view, you'll see a lot of guys yelling, like they're, they're like the world's worst cornermen yelling at the TV like, yeah, I would get him in the arm bar from there with a super kick to the fucking butt or whatever. Yeah. Guys who have no idea how to fight but have all the confidence in the world Stepping up on yeah. that stage, wanting to take a poke at a man who knows what he's doing, and it never ended well for the local townsfolk. And that's why the promoters always kept that $20 bill in their pocket, because very seldom were they going home with the prize. Can you imagine the balls to go into a racist white bar or show or circus venue or tent and be that confident in your skills as a black man and call out anybody in that venue. And then the satisfaction of whooping that good old boy's ass that's in the, front of all his people. That's the genius is what you're talking about. The oh. genius of this. Ooh, that sounds it's, tasty. It's, it's standing the final boss in the middle of your carny, yeah. you know? Yes. And bringing out the plant, of course. But then just letting me stand there and say, bring out the next sucker. Yes. And the suckers will, and the suckers will line up yes. around the Ferris wheel uh, to face the final ball. That would be the greatest day ever. Yes. And Vero Small, Black Sam, he faced many roadblocks during his rise in the ranks of collar and elbow wrestlers, most of them unfortunately being legal troubles. In December 1878, he was arrested for taking part in the robbery of a local store and was sent to the State House of Corrections in Rutland. While working on a barn as a prisoner, Small and three other prisoners escaped into the woods, and after nine days on the run, he was recaptured and sent back to serve out his sentence, which just makes me always think about the uh, opening of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Dude, he's over with me. <laughs> he, yeah. he already, so he's got a prison escape. Yep, this guy is, this guy you is the man. a prison escape, you know. Yeah, totally. That, that, I guarantee that that arrest was faulty. Yeah, and it, yeah, absolutely, man. But you know what? I appreciate the moxie it takes to attempt a prison escape. Well, though. yeah, you, if you ain't guilty, you break out of that bit. And once freed, he was arrested twice more, once for another robbery and once for assault. Small and a few friends looked up a tax collector they wanted to beat up and went to his house and did just that. Unfortunately, they beat up a completely unrelated Dan Peary, they got the wrong guy, beat up some poor son of a bitch. Oh. And that's terrible, but yes, I am also laughing that's, pretty hard. Yeah. Oops, yes, yes. Yeah. You know, don't look like the tax man, I guess, is the moral of that story. And who has not dreamed of beating up a tax collector where we've all been there in our dreams? The local paper called the assault a dark affair because racists oh. are always so goddamn clever. I'm gonna, that's my next promo, a dark affair. A dark affair. He apparently, from what I read, had trouble in prison, but who doesn't have trouble in prison, especially yeah, as, a, as a black man in a New England prison during this era, who has gone through everything he has gone through. I mean, just the sheer amount of what we would call today PTSD. I can't blame him for any sort of fights or trouble he started. It's a bad situation. It's more jive. It's a lot of jive. 
you know, I actually would be a little bit more worried about the cats locked in there with him, man. I mean, he's been training. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Hey, that's oh, why, yeah. yeah, you don't mess with that, dude. So once he was released, Small moved to New York City and wrestled in some of the toughest and seediest places imaginable because those were the only venues a black man could compete in for the most part. This included the infamous Bastille of the Bowery, run by former boxer Oni Gagan. The bar contained two rings for boxing and wrestling exhibitions, as any good bar should. I really feel like this is something that should be brought back. Every bar, bar should have a ring where, you know what, it's, it's Friday night, let's put on some gloves, we've had a few pints, let's beat each other fucking senseless. Yeah, sometimes uh, you just need to be able to have a good Irish conversation with somebody to work something out. What or a cage. What happened to that? I don't think we built cages yet. Yet, I don't think that's a thing yet. Used to, can, Canadian. The bar was known for rowdy, dangerous crowds, crooked management, and crooked fights. There's a story about Gagan being awarded a decision because his goons pointed a gun at the ref until he made the expected call at the end of the match. That's a shoot. That's hey, mate. <laughs> well, that escalated quickly. Apparently, that was that's called the, the ref old, was not in that's on the, the work. Old get down or lay down. Yeah, those are your options. Yeah, totally. That's a, you know that's a strong hand to play. That's how it's done. And Gagan had heard of the up and coming wrestler and contracted him to wrestle at his establishment. The audience and the press loved him. The Police Gazette, which was possibly the most important wrestling publication of its day, wrote about him extensively and gave him a photo spread. Think about its impact as a black wrestler in the 1880s, getting this much attention, this much press, and yeah. all of it being positive. And a lot of that came because at the time, the established nativist uh, racists of the day saw the Irish on the same footing as African-Americans. So they, yeah. the two, you know, there was a lot more camaraderie than yeah, there was later Yeah, anybody's a person. But, you know, that's the crazy part about that is with that kind of publicity, <laughs> they were trying to kill this man. Oh, yeah, and we're talking about, what, 60 years before Jackie <laughs> Robinson in a sport that is predicated on violence? Oh, we're, we're decades even ahead of Jack Johnson. I mean, it's yeah, we're, we're talking about a very this is this is only about 15 to this 20 years first, from gangs of New York territory. Yeah, this is the first black man successful prize anything. And, you know, granted, he was competing mostly against other black boxers and wrestlers. He had reportedly amazing matches against Morris Grant and the black diamond Harry Woodson. The color line was in full effect. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, top American boxers like John L. Sullivan refused to get in the ring against a fighter of color. Even though Vero showed up when Sullivan issued an open challenge to all comers, he was not allowed to get in the ring with the champion. To nobody's surprise. Yeah, he didn't want to get his ass whooped That's by a brother. And that, you know, hey man, he was, trap. He, was, he, was, he was pulling that old school chicken shit. They said like uh, uh, base, baseball records shouldn't count before the <laughs> before the integration. Or, or, or <laughs> throw the, they should count all the Negro League stats yeah, too. Not fair. And moving forward, the Police Gazette sponsored a tournament to crown a heavyweight colored boxing champion and Black Sam was right there in the mix, despite mostly being a wrestler. He had what was reportedly a barn burner of a match with Morris Grant that ended with a DQ after Black Sam landed a hip throw while in a clinch that made the crowd lose their minds and nearly rush to the stage. 
Oops. Well, see, that's very interesting because one thing we have learned, like when Muldoon started working with the top boxers at his time, when he was working with, it was Johnson at the time, a takedown was equivalent to a knockdown by the yeah. scoring system that uh, was in place at the time. Under London prize rules. And we're kind of finding ourselves in that gray area between London prize rules and Queensberry rules. Yeah. There are very different rules for boxing, despite how things have been codified for over a century at this point. But it's kind of like we talked about with Frank Gotch when he tried boxing. Soon as you're, if you're a grappler, as soon as you're in danger and you end up in a clinch, somebody's going airborne. Yeah, and it's you know I think it's probably he you 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 have to expect that he's not going to get the benefit of the doubt in any call, even if the scoring system did allow for takedowns to be worked in. It, I'm sure that he had a very small strike zone, as it were. So he did not win the boxing championship, despite being very game for the tournament. On September 3rd, 1888, after a match at the Bastille of the Bowery against Billy McCollum that ended in a no contest, the two combatants got into a shouting match. They grew quite heated. And later that night, the white wrestler McCollum tried to murder Small by shooting him while he slept. The bullet struck Vero in the neck, but he survived and he recovered. From a shot to the neck? What a dick! And that was the booker. I, and like, like he's a fighter. It's like you, I you not you. have any honor, man. You're gonna shoot. I'm glad I shoot the early. man while he sleeps. You're trying to kill this man. Yes. Like, yeah, I mean that that's really a thing. Like you know, you can you know we, we look at it objectively from our time period, but like you read these stories about an African American man beating or at least making a white man look terrible in the ring or any sporting event. And he gets killed the next day. That yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, it's it's it, it no, it's no, no. terrifying. Gentlemen, this so, is so he this got is, he got shot in the neck. Yeah, but this is the current struggle. <laughs> this is no different. That's that's pretty sad, man. But he recovered from the shot. I don't know. I don't know. He I'm recovered. I feel like right he recovered okay? and then he won yeah, Jimmy. He, he recovered and continued on with his career, which is Think about being shot in the, neck in the late He's a legend. This isn't like modern day where we take you to the ER and they give you antibiotics and a CAT scan or whatever. This is like, well, put we pressure on it himself. Poured some whiskey, drank some whiskey. Yeah, yeah it's like pour booze on it. And like if he lives, if, if he's alive in two days, he'll probably be fine. It's like that type of, yeah. it's Civil War medicine, not oh. far removed. And they just, you know, it's like where it used to be like, well, we'll just saw his leg off because he got shot in the leg, but you can't saw a man's head off. I mean, you can, it's just frowned upon. But he did recover. Take and it wasn't the police who captured McCollum, but bar owner, Oni Gagan. Black Sam's patron was sitting in the barber chair when he received news of the would-be assassin's hiding place. Half-shaven, he got up immediately to go find McCollum and drag his ass to the police station. The attempted murderer would be sentenced to a year and a half in prison, and Black Sam recovered well enough to wrestle four months later. Four months later? A whole year and a half, man. Yes, he shot a man in the neck in cold blood for a year and a half. And I can guarantee you the police were not even like looking for that guy. It's like oh. the, the Irishman brought in. It's like, hey, this is the guy who shot the black wrestler. It's like, cool, oh. should we make him a cop? Right. <laughs> <laughs> you want to stay, brother? Yeah, especially job? with aim like that. 
And, <laughs> you, and I wish I had more information because you assume uh, a situation like that would make them bond for life. But in 1883, Vera went into business with Irish-born boxer and promoter John H. Clark, whose business model revolved around exhibitions and crowd challenge matches. So it was the typical mix of real and worked matches that most stars of the day made good money from. Clark clearly believed in the skills of Black Sam because he went to the press and stated that he put down $250 for anyone who could defeat him under collar and elbow, catch as catch can, or Greco-Roman mixed rules. Think about what $250 was in the late 1800s. That is a lot of goddamn yeah. money. So that shows a lot of confidence yeah. in Black Sam's ability from this promoter because that goes to the press and no matter how hard you work that, you will eventually have to uh, you know, pay up if a legitimate person comes in and takes it. So he had every confidence in this man who survived all of this, including a bullet in the fucking neck to continue to be the baddest ass in a realm of badasses. Bring out the next sucker. Yeah, I mean, he's on his Tupac stage at this point in his career, right? He's gotten up from being shot on his deathbed, and now he's coming back for murderous vengeance. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah he's both. shot in the neck, man. And another milestone. Though it's impossible to say for certain, Vero Small, with this contract and with this income, was most likely the first true professional wrestler who was an African-American man. He did not need another job. He wasn't wrestling as a hobby. He wasn't fighting to, uh, you know, add his income or be that person while working at the docks. This was his job. He was a professional wrestler. He was a professional fighter in New York in the late 1800s. Again, a trailblazer that nobody knows about. That's fantastic. You know, I, you know, and working other brothers as well. That's good booking. Yeah, and, and it's very interesting. His story is kind of like, in a lot of ways, a microcosm for a lot of black men's stories in America. I mean, he this guy had to deal with slavery firsthand. He had to deal with moving uh, into the North and sort of that different, different era and sort of a changing attitude to where he was able to be a professional athlete, even though it was obviously not on the true level that it should have been. But he... No, man, this man achieved superstar. Yeah, I can't even imagine what level of... From slavery... Of inspiration this guy was able to... Drive, drive, daddy. Put into people. Like, he put the work in. This is a man who survived dozens of challenges that would have broken most people. Like I said, he was left adrift after emancipation. Like like we said, it's like he wasn't given resources or stability. It was just, okay, well, you're free now. Go have fun in life. Uh, What am I supposed to do? That's your fucking problem, stupid. Enjoy. He was homeless. He was going town to town, scraping out a living as a teenager at an age where most people are more worried about prom dates and getting into college, he's worried about surviving on the open road as a black man working his way north. He was fighting. He was becoming a champion in open competitions. He was doing all these things that you add a layer of social terror, I guess is the only way to put it. Yes, if you're successful, they will try to kill you, literally. You have to be the best, unpolished, and they'll still throw you in jail. And still, yeah. and, and still you have to fight through it to be successful and enjoy your success. And he was doing just that. This is a man who was making a living purely as a wrestler and a boxer. 
in New York City during this period, he wrestled in the first two incarnations of Madison Square Garden and was regarded as the first true African-American star in American pro wrestling. His last recorded match was in 1885. According to the census records, he married twice and spent his later years working at, you know, unloading a truck in the neighborhood that launched his career, living on Mineta Street, which is just south of Greenwich Village in New York City, if you're familiar with the neighborhood. The, the Bowery was a rundown neighborhood. It wasn't quite as bad as it was during the Gangs of New York period, but it was still very working class, criminal class, not a yeah. safe area. But post-career, you know, he essentially disappeared. In 1910, he simply vanishes from the public record. How he spent the rest of his life, when he died, where he might be buried, are all mysteries that most likely will never be solved. Which is a true shame. I mean, we're talking about a guy who, you know, just on the aspect of his accomplishments in both boxing and professional wrestling at that time, we, you know, what a trailblazer. It's how many, this is what, Close to a hundred years before Ali Fadanoki, maybe eighty years before Ali Fadanoki. Yeah, that you know when you talk about a black man mixing martial arts, this is so incredible, and the fact that his story hasn't been told is is really tragic. And I feel like you know because a lot of times when people stop being famous, they can disappear. But the white stars of the day, the Muldoons, the Stranglers, um, yeah. these were men who were given other opportunities because people wanted them to come be guest referees, be a special attraction, a, a meet and greet, if you will. Yeah. One last comeback match, uh, even if it's worked. This is a man who climbed his way, clawed his way to the top of his field because as, you know, as we kind of assume, nobody's going to work as in doing worked matches, prearranged, however you want to call it, yeah. matches with a black wrestler. And I also feel like the other black boxers, black wrestlers, there wasn't a lot of working because this was the meal ticket. This wasn't, let's all, you know, it, it, and I'm not saying is a bad thing. I'm just saying there was very few spots for success for a black man in sports in the late 1800s, which doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room to commit the usual carny scams that we saw in the business at the time. Right. And play nice with your with your contemporaries. I mean, it's very similar to what we saw in the Mildred Burke story, the history of women. It's so hyper competitive because it is such a you are bucking the social trend so hard and you are having to trailblaze so hard to even get a spot that unfortunately anyone who you see as a rival at that time, you don't get to appreciate as a fellow, you know, yeah. groundbreaker. It's just that guy might be the guy that eats my dinner tonight. And that's really, really tragic. Yeah. And I do feel that one reason he was allowed to just disappear is, you know, like we said, it's like if, you know, Strangler Lewis, people kept trying to bring him out of retirement to do things to make a buck off of him. I, I'm, I'm doing a lot, I'm reading into this a lot, I'm making a lot of assumptions, but I feel like my assumptions are very much reflected and informed by history, sociology, and psychology, that I feel like a lot of white wrestlers and wrestling fans were very happy to see him exit the stage because that was no longer a black man beating a white man's right. ass. Incredible. And, and, you know, here's the deal about the business in general. Because of how good he was, 
someone constantly for his whole adult life was booking that man. Yeah. On a, on a regular basis. Yeah, this man. Weekly. Weekly. Yeah. yeah, he had to earn it over and over again. Every That's time, right. Brother. And he built that reputation on, on blood. On grit, man. Yeah, and there were, you know, like that's what we see. You know, this is a man who had over 60 victories. I saw nothing, unfortunately, about how many losses he had. I feel that by the stature he achieved, there weren't that many of them. But even if you look at this from the standpoint of a legitimate sporting man in this era, where brain damage be damned, you're going to be in that ring boxing or wrestling every weekend, selling tickets, being an attraction so the bar can sell all the, uh, the, you know, 50% alcohol and uh, dung beetle beer that they're serving because the FDA didn't exist at that time. So this is a man who was very active, very competitive, and he was a winner during an era where a black man was not supposed to be a winner. Yeah, and yeah. I, think, I think the sad reality is that when he stepped away from that position of prominence, society treated him as just another black man. And that's why there is no record beyond when his fight career was relevant and that you know i think that's probably indicative of the time and the attitudes at the time but it's you know uh, on the one hand i'm very grateful that we have the information we do have but it's really sad that we weren't able to hear what the the completion of the story was i just hope that he spent the rest of his life happy healthy and looking back on a great that was a great exit that was bat style bro that's how you do it thank you yes smoke pellet yes smoke pellet. that's right that's That's, right disappearing act and now we have another gentleman to examine who also had a lot of mystery to his life and that is frank crozier it's hard to find any information on Frank Crozier. The man doesn't even have a Wikipedia page of his own. But this Jamaican-born wrestler and boxer's place in history is unique, important, and deserves to be told. Frank Crozier was born in Jamaica in 1882. He worked at the shipyards as a mechanic until he moved to Britain in the early 1900s. This was an easier task than you might uh, might assume aside from the long boat ride because Jamaica was still a British colony at that point and British citizenship was granted automatically. Did he have the cool Lennox Lewis accent? I like that he's Jamaican, so he has the same accent in Jamaica and England. You don't? You don't switch accents when you go? No, it's the same accent. Really? Yeah. Does, so does Lennox Lewis not have a Jamaican accent? It's like British. No, he's British. But it's, it's a British accent. Oh man. He's strong. He's he's speaking the proper No, it's he speaks the, the Kings, queen. man. That's right. The Queens. It's the Queens. No, it's the King's English. It's the Queen. It's technically the Queen's English. She's in charge now. It's in the it's in the Bible. <laughs> I don't know husband, where you find You know what? Leave it to the semantics English of a chat. It's still the prince. Yeah. Fucking eighty hundred years old. Died as the prince. He was a big, strong man, as working in a shipyard will make you. Once again, we need to point out that physical labor, be it farm or mechanical work, builds tendon strength that makes a wrestler's grip almost impossible to escape. We've talked about this with uh, you know, Strangler Lewis before. We've experienced it in grappling competition. There's a difference between muscle strength and tendon strength. And if somebody with tendon strength gets a hold of you, you're not going anywhere. Yes, some people have a God-given ability to grip with their hand like a talon. And then you have people like you, Bossy, that have to wear gloves to compensate for the fact that you can't pop basketball. I'm working on it. I know. You're trying to get that Kurt Angle slash Mark Henry on. You know what I'm talking about? 
Yeah, what, a hand? It's how I grab cheeks. Jesus Christ. <laughs> he ended up in Scotland, where he got involved in gym culture and wrestling. He caught the eye of Alexander Monroe, a heavyweight catch wrestler who, in July of 1905, lost to George Hackenschmidt in front of 20,000 people at the Ebrox Stadium. One of Hackenschmidt's many victims, but that is a hell of an honor to even lose to a man because that means you were good enough to compete with that man. Yeah, if you got in there with Hackenschmidt in front of 20,000 people, it meant that you were at the top of the food chain, at least in your territory. Most definitely. Main event against Hackenschmidt? Yes. Yeah, there was a line of people that wanted that spot. Yeah, and I would say that that makes you pretty qualified to be an eye for talent after that point. Yeah. And as important a spot that was, because keep in mind, this is a very competitive sport, a very competitive um, you know, way to be booked, because this isn't boxing in the 90s where you could be a world champion and fighting a guy who is a part-time used car salesman. These are all professional athletes at the top of their game, and he stepped up against one of the best and lost in front of 20,000 people. But I think we can all agree that Monroe's real accomplishment was to win bronze and silver medals at the Olympics as part of the English tug-of-war team. Uh, yeah. I, I want to know who won the gold. I want to know why tug-of-war team ain't still... Yeah, how do we not number, still have tug-of-war as an Olympic sport? Number one Olympic sport. Yeah, really, just just let's get down to the nitty-gritty, man. He, Can we beat you gold, at tug-of-war? You got bronze on the tug-of-war? Yeah. And what year was that? This is back in the 1800s. This is back when the... The, the Olympics looked a lot more like a, uh, a school or a summer camp field day than it does as the sporting event it is now. Back when tug of war All was blues. tug of war. That's right. All blues. Under Alexander Monroe's training, Crozier began racking up wins and in 1906 won the Scottish Wrestling Championship, thus becoming the first black wrestler to win a major title in Britain, as far as I can find. That's awesome. I want to know if he wore a kilt. Why would he wear a kilt? In Scotland, man. I mean, you know, in Rome, this is, seems appropriate, does it not? You're the Scottish champion. Pretty much the wrong century, but I like where your heart is at. <laughs> it's never the wrong century for a kilt. Because systemic racism wasn't the same barrier to black athletes in Britain that it was in America at the time, where top boxers and wrestlers refused to fight black fighters. Or city and state laws forbid them from even competing, or at least yeah. competing at high levels. That's true. Britain had abolished slavery decades earlier than America and without a bloody civil war to do so. Thus, integration was much higher. Though this by no means means that racism wasn't an issue, it just means that the powers that be were far more concerned with keeping tough working men from competing against the aristocracy in Olympic-style sports. It well, was far more egalitarian. Well said, Gassi. Well said. Exactly that, what he was So they were about. trying to protect the Ivy League kids from getting beat up that's by, not the, it. by the hood kids, it's pretty like, much? Look, Oh, 100%, because that's something, and we'll discuss this when we eventually talk about Olympic sports and their researches in the late 1800s. The reason that Olympics were amateur sports when it kind of was reformatted in the 1800s was because most people who fenced, who boxed, who did all these things were 
aristocrats who yeah. had no job, had no money. So these were gentlemanly pursuits. And the last thing that a baron, a duke, an earl, whatever, ever wanted to Can't deal with was getting knocked out, yep. being outpointed, losing a race to Henry Joe, who works at the factory That's in downtown right. London, breathing suit all day. Class was more important than race at the time. Yeah, on equal ground, look, everybody can play. But you can't play with them. Yeah, that's it sucks that the emperor has no <laughs> clothes even applies to something as supposedly pure as the Olympics. And I wish I had more information on his life at this time. Being in one's early 20s and emigrating from Jamaica to Scotland via boat, getting involved in competitive wrestling, gym culture. I mean, this guy, there are some photos of this guy and he is cut like a motherfucker. This is a guy who worked out hard, who trained hard, and really, from what I've seen, didn't start wrestling until he was in England. So he became a champion very quick into his career. You know, kind of reminds me of, again, a guy like Vero Smalls or people in, you know, modern MMA, a guy like uh, like Frank Shamrock, the type of guys who start training pretty much as adults and are very quickly at the top of the food chain. Yeah, or like a BJ Penn. Some guys just have a natural aptitude for combat and for violence. And clearly this, this was an example of someone who was able to thrive in that environment and, that, and, and he, he traveled and he conquered everywhere he went. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful testament to the sort of progressive elements on that side of the pond too. Yeah, you gotta do what you're good at. And after conquering the world of Scottish wrestling, he moved to London to try to make it big and make it big he did. Crozier competed in the middleweight category of the 1908 Hengler Circus Tournament in London and took third place. Though injured in an earlier round, he had a brutal match against Sam Anderson and lost via heavily challenged decision. So this is a guy who shows up in town, despite there not being a huge amount of systemic racism, we kind of have a feeling that the crowd was uh, not exactly on his side. Right. And he gave Sam Anderson everything he could handle, lost a decision so close that it pissed off the crowd. Yeah, and, and actually, if he took the bronze medal, you can't win a bronze medal without winning your last match. That means he lost his semifinal match to somebody that went on to compete for the gold. And then he had to go out there and, and win his last match to get that bronze. He's still gonna win. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a really incredible uh, accomplishment. And an interesting side note that I found, Sam Anderson went on to the finals to lose to Henry Erslinger, who was one of the few people to make Mitsuyo Maeda tap out in catches catch can competition in England. So this is the man wow. who taught jiu-jitsu judo at the time to the Gracie family mm. was defeated by the man who won this tournament. Wow, that's really incredible. Yeah, that, that count. That's top level. Yeah, it, it just, it shows how cyclical the true history of the grappling arts is. Yeah. When we discuss these kinds of tournaments, it's important to remember that they didn't take place over a day or a weekend. This isn't Everybody goes down to the uh, the Mega Mart space, weighs in, puts down their $20 entrance fee, and has a multi-bracketed tournament right there. They would take place over two or three months sometimes. They were grueling, and an injury had no time to heal. In fact, it's harder to compete a week after being hurt 
than an hour after doing so because as Definitely. you know, I think yeah. a lot of us have, have, you know, with our athletic backgrounds know that you can be hurt and be like, let's just tape this up and get fucking through it. I can deal with the consequences tomorrow, but you win a fight, you win a match and you wake up the next day and your ankle or your knee is the size of a cantaloupe. That's not going to get better by next Friday. Yeah. Adrenaline is a hell of a drug and it will get you through the night and through the fight. And, and be what it may at the other end, you know, healing and recover time. It's going to be what it is, but you can get through a tournament or a, a, a night or even a weekend of competition. But yeah, the longer you go, once it's been day one, day two, day three, that's when the pain and the fatigue of recovering from those injuries really sets in. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. I was thinking this is more like the UFC days, you know, where it's a one day tournament, you know, fight four times. Dan Severin type. Oh, yeah. no, it's, but it's, this is vicious. Like, this yeah, is, this this, is, yeah, this is, you know, sometimes four or five weekends in a row. And, you know, those you, you have time for your injuries to be, you know, full of inflammation. You know, we didn't have Advil back in those days. We didn't have cortisone shots. It was just like, well, let's just tape it up and uh, huff some ether and hope for the best and move forward with this thing. Because that's why. Huff some ether. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Because <laughs> that's why, you know, I think about like uh, the first UFC where uh, Gerard Jordan went all the way to the finals after breaking his hand and his foot in the first fight. But then you think about a guy like Steve Iserman, who was the captain of the Troy Red Wings, played the entire Stanley Cup finals with one ACL. Yeah, the, it's an testament to what the mind can do to overcome the limitations of the body, especially in a high level champion. That's right. But, that's right. But it's also, it you know, those are the kind of things that really cause the permanent damage. When you push through an injury as an athlete and you get that that additional damage on top of the initial thing before it's recovered, that's where you get hurt permanent. Yeah, you can't walk it off. That's the problem. And maybe he healed up and maybe learning his lesson. Frank Crozier came back strong at the 1908 Alhambra Theater Wrestling Tournament. The Alhambra was a Moorish Spanish style theater in London. And this tournament for a few years was the most prestigious grappling event in the world. Think how Abu Dhabi was for yeah. a long time. Uh, you know, fill us in, like, how would you describe that tournament? That is a, a, an example of what the biggest money going towards a grappling uh, promotion or grappling tournament can produce. Abu Dhabi was what it's the Sultan or one of the, the princes of Sudan started Abu Dhabi. Is that, is oh, that right? It's, it's in Abu Dhabi, the United uh, Arab Emirates. Yeah. And it's, it's the biggest money submission grappling tournament in the world, or at least it was for a long time. And it's because he was, wasn't he bodyguarded the, the, what is it? The Sheik or is the Prince? I forget who started the, the original Abu Dhabi, but my understanding was he was bodyguarded by one of the Gracie family members initially, and they they taught him some initial jujitsu, and he fell in love with it to the point where he basically sponsored the biggest financial win, like the biggest win bonus you can get in submission grappling yeah. and jujitsu was Abu Dhabi for a long time. I like it. And that's what this was for its time and place. And in previous episodes, you've most likely heard the name when we've talked about other wrestlers like George Hackenschmidt or Mitsuyo Maeda, who were both in competition as well. And over the course of a month and six matches, 
Crozier made zero mistakes in his matches and ended his perfect run by defeating Joe Carroll, who had won the first recognized British middleweight catch wrestling championship in 1899 in the final. So padding his uh, accomplishment as the Scottish champion, he has now won one of the most prestigious grappling tournaments in the world at that time. Right. And dethroned the previous champion in the finals. That's that's the that's the highest form of victory that you could pull off. It said he ran through he, he beat he beat that's mistake free. No turnovers. That's that's fantastic. Think about if uh, like the biggest like jujitsu or wrestling or Olympic wrestling tournaments, what it means to have no points scored against you at that level. Yeah, it's incredible. It's that level of dominance is really remarkable in any athletic medium, let alone something as just wild and variable as grappling. Yeah, when you put enough tattoos in your arm, nobody argues with you if you're the best or not. Well, I don't I don't know if that, I don't know if he was tattooing all the all the victories on his arm, old chap, but he was definitely racking them up. I was looking at you. I was talking to you. Frank Crozier stood in front of the crowd at that London theater as the first nationally recognized black catch wrestling champion in history and was presented with the Lord Longstell belt custom made for the champion Ooh, of the tournament. Got the gold ballin'. See, yeah. where's the pictures of that? I, I wish I could find them because once again, this is a man who now, again, he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Trying to find information on this man was very difficult, very rewarding, and I'm glad we're able to present these, this story because this is a man who was born in Jamaica. He went to Scotland, he learned to wrestle, he became a champion there, he went to London, he was competing with the best in Europe and the Middle East at the time and walking away with flawless victories. Mm. He returned in 1910 to the tournament, but was defeated in the semifinals by Indian wrestler Bhutan Singh. But at this point, Crozier started showing more interest in boxing and helped several local boxers with their strength and conditioning training for fights. Again, if you look up photos of this man, he is he looks like a modern athlete. Six-pack, huge pecs, muscle definition. He looks fantastic. Does he have his weight, height and weight? How big is he? He's, uh, unfortunately, that I don't have any of that information. But uh, you know, if you look at him, he was a sizable man. He was fighting as a middleweight. So clearly, in these times, a middleweight was, I'm going to guess, somewhere around the 170-pound mark. I could be very wrong. It's just, especially in England, Heavyweights were not what we think of as heavyweights today. So Frank Rozier, at this point, departed London to mainland Europe and traveled the continent boxing and wrestling. He joined a troop of boxers that put on demonstrations of the English Marquis Queensberry rules, which were still catching on to replace the London prize rules. The results were mixed, with Madrid refusing to allow the violent demonstrations, but Barcelona welcoming them with open arms as celebrities. Yeah, it's a it's a real hodgepodge at that time. What the where where the hotbeds were, where the styles were accepted, where the presentation of professional combative sports was accepted, and it's I, th I think it's also very interesting that both of the subjects of today's episodes were kind of utilized in both boxing and wrestling. I don't know if that is a coincidence or that's indicative of what it took to get an opportunity in combat sports as a black man at that time where you just 
kind of had to be a jack of all trades and jump oh, that's at whatever what, availability that, that's what it was. It, that's what it was. That that yeah. was the avenue to success. The avenue was to be the best athlete in the field, period. So both fields, grappling and boxing, you have to dominate those. And, you know, through notoriety alone, you'll get recognized. But they had to mow through the competition. But this man, with <laughs> imagine a Jamaican running around Europe, beating up everybody. That's what's going on here. Oh, it's beautiful. I wonder, it's fantastic. I wonder if he ever cut a promo. Yeah. And we also have to consider that boxing wasn't how we think of boxing today. Boxing was illegal in most states in the United States. Boxing was, I think, still technically illegal in England, even though it was an open secret. It was covered in the sporting pages. A lot of mainland Europe really hadn't caught on to the sport. So these were a lot of times exhibitions, so more or less mm. dramatic sparring uh, matches just to show off what the sport was because it hadn't caught on in Spain yet. Yeah. So it was a new sport and they really were the pioneers bringing it to mainland Europe. Bare knuckle? No, at this point it was light gloves. Yeah, good. So there were good. gloves. We're not talking the, like, you know, the, the proper like 10 ounce competitive gloves for sparring. Um, we're talking probably closer to uh, you know what what the the UFC gloves are. Like yeah. probably about like a six or seven ounce little bit of leather padding. Yeah. Just so, uh, Once they put the guns. gloves on, it becomes a gentleman's game. Is that is that the defining characteristic of a gentleman's game? Well, that's why the final boss wears gloves when we fight. Oh, I thought it was because you can't palm a basketball. That's not why. Oh, okay. I can totally palm a basketball with both hands <laughs> together. So he could be found boxing and wrestling from Berlin to Paris to Spain before settling down in Madrid, the city having changed its mind about boxing. And in 1913, he opened the Anglo-Spanish Academy of Physical Culture and Boxing and married a Spanish woman settling down in that city. The man. Left it and married a Spanish woman? Well, from, for, he, From Spain, no doubt though, because they're super fine. Oh yes, yeah. yeah. I know. I know. You're you, in I, Europe, and you marry a Spanish woman. She's not from New York. She's from Spain, Spain. And he is—he has truly lived the dream. He has traveled the world, and he's he living in successful. London when this happens. So no, he's in Spain, man. It's like you're not even listening. I yeah, swear. he's in Spain. He has to follow the plot, boss. Now we're in Spain. Yes. And in 1916, a massive opportunity came his way when Jack Johnson, having fled America to avoid yeah, wrestling, I know who the fuck this guy is. Having fled America to avoid racial persecution and avoided much of Europe as the First World War began, needed an opponent for an exhibition who had enough experience to make it work. And when we talk about Jack Johnson, no, we're not talking about a white goofball musician with an acoustic guitar. Nice. Jack Johnson was the most important black athlete in pre-civil rights era America. He was such a successful boxer that even the government tried to stop him. His fight against James Jeffries was called the fight of the century when Jeffries was dubbed the great white hope against the black champions. And I quote, I am going into this fight for the sole purpose of proving that a white man is better than a Negro, Jeffries claimed. And after 15 rounds of an absolute one-sided ass kicking, Jeffrey's corner threw in the towel to avoid the inevitable KO. Race riots erupted across the country. 
If you've never seen it, there is a documentary about this man called Unforgivable Blackness. It not only showcases what a brilliant athlete and boxer this man was, but it also shows how little America, white America at the time, wanted to see a black man succeed. That's right. Yeah, the fact that he had to flee the country to set up his introduction into our story today uh, speaks volumes about what it was like for him at that time in America, because you're talking about, yeah, the first black American world champion heavyweight boxer, and he's having to flee the United States. Jack Johnson was so damn good that I actually remember the match that we were about to talk about because I know all about Jack Johnson. The man was unstoppable. It's the bottom line. And like many black athletes and entertainers, Johnson found a more racially integrated Europe waiting for him with open arms. The Frank Crozier versus Jack Johnson exhibition match took place at the Grand Theater in Madrid on March 23rd, 1916. The place was packed to the rafters and attended by aristocrats, high-level officials, military officers, and even Don Alfonso, son of King Alfonso VIII. That's a hell of a crowd. What, what year was that? That was in 1916. 19. The proper prince, right? That would make him the prince. He was there to see Jack Johnson. And, and it just speaks to the progressive level of advancement of the UK at the time compared to the United States. Well, and this is in Spain. Oh, this is, damn it, we're this still Spain. in Spain. Yeah, yeah, pay attention, man. Oh, now it's me not paying attention. <laughs> well, I was paying attention, but- But I, yeah, no, the best part about this story is, is, is what I was talking about being the best. Jack Johnson goes to Europe. He needs an opponent. Who does he find? Yeah, who, who, who uh, put this match it's, it's together? It's Jack Johnson. Do you know Everybody in there. Every, it was Jack Johnson's manager. Everyone in Europe wants that fight. Because keep in mind, he's in, True. you know, like we were just discussing, boxing really hadn't caught on to a huge degree in mainland Europe. So Frank Crozier was just the right man in the right place at the right time. However, exhibition or not, Frank Crozier was in over his head against Johnson who knocked down his Jamaican opponent several times in a matter of minutes. It was over so quickly that the crowd got upset and was making a scene, so Johnson had his nephew and sparring partner Gus Rhodes lace up his gloves and go a few rounds. This is a thing to remember, and we talk about this a lot. There are levels to this. That's right. Whether it's grappling, whether it's boxing, whether it's MMA, whether it's a specific type of wrestling, the average good amateur is no match for a mediocre pro, let alone the best goddamn boxer on planet Earth at the time. Yeah. Yeah, the heavyweight champion of the world. That is exactly how that story goes, even though I didn't know Frank's name before. You know, but a tip of the cap to Crozier for being a game opponent. Yeah. Going in there against not only a heavyweight uh, champion, but the, the heavyweight champion, when you yourself are a middleweight, that is that is uh, yeah. very Shout impressive. Shout out to Frank Crozier for getting that booking, more, most importantly. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, like we discussed before, the most mediocre pro fighter, you know, the guy when you're, you're in the bar watching a, a boxing card or a UFC or whatever, and the, and the guy on the bar stool next to you was like, this guy's a fucking bum, he fucking sucks, he got knocked out in the first round, what a, what a, what a dork. It's like, on that guy's worst day, he would beat you to death and every one of your friend, friends if they got in line. Just understand like this, Sir, Sir Duke of 
such and such in Ellington, the greatest boxer that his family's seen since 1808 did not want that fight against Jack Johnson. There yes. was hundreds of people wanted to fight and more importantly, thousands that would not take it. Yes, Crozier ended up the man who got the fight and he had, a, am sure, a tremendous opportunity to dethrone the world heavyweight champion. But yeah, that's, a, that's too No, that order. story is pure accurate. The man was game, but he was outmatched. Bottom line, he was... He was outgunned. It's me versus you in a jujitsu match. The 34-year-old Frank Crozier had his biggest opportunity in boxing reduced to a humiliating afterthought. After all, he was primarily a great wrestler, mood lighting as a mediocre boxer. And anyone who has watched MMA over the years and seen brilliant grapplers fall in love with striking, refusing to stick to their strengths and finding themselves on the business end of a terrible beating, understands how that can be. Something we've seen a lot in mixed martial arts where a guy is a brilliant wrestler, a brilliant jujitsu man, but for some reason he gets in his head that he wants to knock people out for highlight reels <laughs> and just gets worked over five times in a goddamn row. Yeah, we've seen it so many times where that, I believe it, it's a bit of imposed hubris from one's camp. We saw it with Ronda Rousey, I where Ronda she Rousey. was dominant in two of the three aspects of the fight game but she chose to try to develop a reputation as not sufficient in the striking game and wanted to strike with, with sharks. And she got, she got toasted because of it, because she didn't stay true to her own game. And it's That's right. It's That's an right. all too familiar tale. In Once the fight again, game. do what you're good at. And if you are trying to branch out, don't stop doing what you're good at. Yeah, exactly. That's how you get kicked in the face. And after that, not much is known. Uh, his final wrestling match on record was in 1920 against a Spanish wrestler nicknamed Kamalov. Nice. After that, he traveled the country lecturing on physical culture, wrestling, and boxing. He worked as a boxing trainer and massage therapist at several clubs in Madrid, trying to make ends meet. In 1926, he was hired as an athletic coach for a local football team and to get the city's police in fighting shape. He was stiffed on pay with both jobs and spent years trying to collect with no luck. Well, that is a tremendous resume and also a tremendous uh, ledger of people that owe you money. What a hosiery at the end. Back to the jive. But most importantly, I have to tell you the dope part about this whole story. Mick struggling to make ends meet. That's bad. In Madrid, it's not so bad. That's fair. Fair point. It's yeah. still bad. I mean, you know, he's not. He he could be but, feeling worse, old. But chap. no, the yeah, the man was living in 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 you know in in the bluest blood of Europe the whole time, and living the good life. To be honest, this is true. But we're really seeing that the career of a traveling boxer and wrestler doesn't always equal a uh, padded bank account because he did struggle. And the last known record of his life was in 1937 when he was volunteering at a hospital during the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War to help the country that treated him so well, despite having a UK passport that could have gotten him out of an increasingly terrible war zone. For those of you not familiar with the Spanish Civil War, it was more or less the dress rehearsal for World War II where Nazi Germany 
backed and provided a lot of military cover for Spanish fascists that ended up taking over the country. What happened to him after that? Was he killed during the war? Did he escape to parts unknown? Did he just live out an ordinary life in the Spanish countryside? Did he just live out an ordinary life in the Spanish countryside, far from his athletic past? Once again, through the fog of war and history, the rest of his story is a mystery. Ooh, that rhyme. That was a really good ending. It's a good finish. I wanna I wanna believe he went back to Scotland and had a kill. I'm going with also went back to Scotland and wrestled as a lucha uh, for like 20 more years. Scottish lucha. Yeah. And we'll first one ever. Find the first Scottish lucha. Find the first Scottish lucha. But I'm, I'm, this is why this, these stories are so important because they're so rarely told and so hard yes. to find. This was a man, you know, when we talked about Vero Small, who came from slavery, became a champion, became a star in New York City survived being shot in the neck, became the first African-American wrestling champion and true professional wrestler. With Crozier, we found a black man from Jamaica who became a star and a champion in Scotland, won the most prestigious grappling tournament in London, introduced boxing all throughout mainland Europe, stepped in the ring with the greatest boxer. Oh, Jack Johnson. Potentially of, of you know, He's one of those guys that has to be in that conversation of men like Ali and Tyson as far as totally. who was the greatest of their era. That's right. And he, yeah. he didn't last long, but he got in there. He had the right to get in the ring with that man. And in the end, both of them just mysteriously disappear from history once their story is told. That style. Yes, well. That's how it's done. Yeah, they, they rode off into the sunset like true legends do. And, uh, you know, we're going like, to. Like Zora on a horse. You know? Yes, like a horse of greatness. That's right. Yeah. Sunset. It was. It's a. You know. It's a beautiful. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful idea that they had. That they were able to have this romantic ending to the story, but you yeah. know, unfortunately, I think the reality is probably a lot, a lot harsher and uglier and less. Sure, it's not. You know, both these guys died. With oh, definitely, he made it. Back. But, he definitely made it back to Scotland. But. The good news about this is it's the body of work, right? Both of these stories. These these champions are just that. These are the best in their field. This these are this is the cream of the crop. This is the toppy top. This is the one percent. This is this is a hundred years before an NFL. Yeah, this is you know, we wouldn't have Ron Simmons winning becoming the first ever NWA Black World Heavyweight Champion when he beat Vader if it wasn't for these yeah, you know, this, groundbreaking in, stories that haven't gotten out. Yeah, in both countries, in both continents, it's it's blatantly teaching teaching the powers that be that you can't argue with talent. It, it, as long as there's a competition based, the the number one, regardless of who it is, because that's the most important part, is the brother. It doesn't matter if we're both fighters, if we're both in the same game. Who cares? What you look like? How good are you? And are you willing to fight everybody to show you're the best or not? Yeah, you'd have to be to be the guy going into those hostile environments and calling out the crowd night after night. And that's where we're going to end things with two great stories about two great men. Stories I didn't know about until very recently. And this is what I live for, fighting these obscure people. These men were... Champions, these men were heroes. They were trailblazers. 
they set a precedent that you cannot take away from them no matter what. So we're going to leave that here for now, and we're going to come back to some of their contemporaries at a later time because their stories are just as important and just as crazy. But for now, please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, same thing with our Instagram. Um, again, please give us, uh, give us a nice review if you have time, uh, if you're listening to things on iTunes. And for Chongo Bronson and for Bruce Wayans, I'm Nick Gossert. This is Pro Wrestling History Nerds. Good night. Catch Prince Martini. <laughs>